Hello folks, I'm Lillian Crawford, a freelance film critic and historian focusing on women and post-war British cinema. Welcome to the second season of the Listen to Lillian podcast, part of an ongoing blog I've recently set up on Substack to develop my research on my own terms. Simply go to listentolillian.substack.com to subscribe for a bumper crop of reviews, essays and feature articles. Each episode I invite my guests to select a British film to discuss, from the silent era to recent releases. All I ask is they pick a film they think is particularly interesting in its representation of female characters or its approach to queer subject matter. For this episode I've invited my friend Ian Wang to talk to me about the films of Alison Devere. Here's a short clip from one of her films. Hi Ian, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good, it's good to see you. Good to see you too. Um, yeah, it's been it's been a while, although we 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 did uh we last saw each other doing an animation quiz. So it's 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 true to form that you should be doing um asking to do animation. Um I should we say did. That, that was um, that was terrific, by the way. Thank you. Um yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I should say that when I was um at university I edited a wonderful column that Ian wrote on on animated films so I I'm delighted that we get to talk about um Alison Devere today um do you want yeah. to say introduce yourself to the listeners sure yeah um so uh I'm a film writer a kind of general culture writer um and have had various pieces in various places a couple of them about animation um obviously starting under uh, Lillian's wonderful kind of uh, stewardship at uh, the Cambridge Student Newspaper Varsity and um, use that to kind of branch off into a couple of other places and yeah have always kind of been interested in um, independent animation basically and uh, particularly kind of I when I was sort of trying to learn more about the history of that in Britain Alison Devere's name was someone who kind of kept propping up and I, I guess I was kind of interested to learn more about her for, for this episode just for my own sake as well but um, also just to kind of um, yeah shed light on um, some of the kind of I guess forgotten gems in in British animation history and particularly by kind of female animators who um, often haven't kind of had the light of day until fairly recently so. Yeah absolutely I, I, I also am coming at this very largely unaware of who Alison Devere is I think I, I mean I must have seen I, I definitely had seen some clips from the Black Dog somewhere it might have been in mm. Mark Cousins um women make oh sure which, which yeah, I hate everything's in that it's a bad <laughs> documentary <laughs> um, yeah but um 
yeah, I, I so I, I was vaguely aware of her, but hadn't really sort of matched a name to the animation, as it were. Um, I suppose my knowledge of, of, of British animation was lar- largely Ardman. Um, yes. Watership Down and Joy Bachelor, um, which is which is nice because Joy Bachelor sort of comes into Alison Devere's story. Is um, yes, um, she started work working with with Joy Bachelor and John Hallis, who um, directed the first feature British um, animated film, Animal Farm. In what what year was that? Nineteen fifty four, I think. Yeah, nineteen fifty four. I w- I shouldn't doubt myself. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you are knowledgeable um, up front. <laughs> um, yeah, so that that's like where I'm coming from with this. So, um, yeah, I, I was hoping that you'd pick some animation because that's not <laughs> not something we've covered on this podcast yet. We've done done a fair bit of Jarman now, um, quite a lot of Tilda Swinton films. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm 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 really pleased you you've chosen her. Um, what 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 do you make of her work, or um, do you want to just sort of give people an introduction to who she is? Yeah, of course. So um, as you said, she um, she started working uh, really for House and Bachelor in the fifties um, as a kind of I think just a general animator and designer, um, and actually didn't start making her own sort of solo films until much later, or at least not at the kind of level of prominence. I think she had a couple little experiments while she was at House and Bachelor, but, um, you know, kind of, I think up until maybe the 70s, she might have been best known for uh, doing some of the work on uh, the Beatles animated Yellow Submarine film. Um, and then in the 70s, she started making a couple uh, kind of just short independent works, uh, a film called Mr. Pascal, a film called uh, Cafe Bar, uh, which, you know, did... Um, you know, went around a couple of festivals. Um, and then I think she kind of rose to the, you know, the height of her prominence, I guess, um, working for Channel 4 in the 90s and 80s, uh, most notably a film called The Black Dog, um, a film called Psyche and Eros. Um, and yeah, she's um, she's kind of interesting, I think, because she she actually didn't really start making uh, some of her more well-known works until, until she was well into her career. I, I was you know, I realised the Black Dog would have come out the year that she turned 60, um, which is um, kind of crazy to me because it's it's um, it's such a kind of odd and experimental film. I mean, it's kind of about, um, it sort of tracks this woman's dream from, from start to finish as she kind of traverses around this sort of surreal landscape that seems to be part sort of Egyptian mythology in part. You know, there's a point where she goes into this weird rowdy, like, um, I don't know, like salsa bar or something. And um, there are lots of kind of uh, strange passages and moments. And that's something that you see throughout her films, I think, is um, she has this kind of knack for these odd, surreal images um, and this kind of combination of different kinds of mythologies that I find really interesting. Um, and yeah, you know, she she never kind of became necessarily the biggest name or anything like that, I guess. Um, never to the kind of the level of someone like Joe Bachelor or, uh, or you know, Ardman, obviously. Um, but, you know, she was, her stuff was kind of airing alongside, say, the Ardman shorts that were, were also being shown on Channel 4 in the 80s. And, yeah, um, she just kind of had this interesting creative career where she um, made these really interesting uh, independent shorts and then 
I think um, they've been kind of remembered by some people in animation circles, but not necessarily uh, that far beyond that. And I think, yeah, she, it was interesting to kind of actually dig into her work and see this undercurrent of strange surrealism that actually has existed in British animation, but maybe hasn't kind of been told more widely. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's something I've definitely noticed doing doing a number of these podcasts is that a lot of the films that are most interesting which is perhaps why people have chosen them to, to talk about in, in when when I say you know look at it for a lens of sort of um representations of women and 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 queerness is is that a lot of these films aren't being made at sort of major studios it's more television funding that's sort of like driving mm. um these projects and I think it's interesting that her her career as you say really only takes off in, in the 80s when Channel 4 um, starts and they start funding things like this and you know Channel 4's gone on to do lots and, and with um, Film 4 as a subsidiary um, to fund things like uh, Jimmy T. Murakami's um, adaptations mm, of Raymond yes. Briggs Son- The Snowman and um, When the Wind Blows and it's it, I I don't know personally what Channel 4's like re- relationship is to animation. Um, do you do you know why they're that they're perhaps? I mean, the BBC's sort of gone into it more in in recent years. They've started doing like the Christmas sort of half an hour Julia Donaldson mm. thing, and but Channel yes. 4's always had that. Um, even re- more recently, doing things like um, Quentin Blake's Clown. Um, Tiger who came yeah. and we're going on a bear hunt. Do, do you know anything about why that is? Yeah, well, I, I was trying to look into that a bit um, just while I was doing a bit of research for the podcast. And I mean, from from my understanding, there was basically in the sort of 80s and 90s, there were just a couple people on kind of, I guess, the editorial staff of, of the channel who um, basically kind of put animation on the forefront. Um, two people called Paul Madden and Claire Kitson who um, did a lot of work and kind of basically commissioning a lot of this stuff. Um, I think this was a, around the time that like there was, um, yeah, like you say, more kind of funding from TV. I mean, obviously this is like, I guess this would be the era that like Mike Lee starts making like things like Abigail's Party and stuff. And I think that's, I guess, very much part of this culture of providing more funding for um, sort of independent uh, creators obviously like the BFI and, and the BBC are doing this sort of thing as well um, but yeah I think that that period in the 80s I think quite a few animation historians have kind of looked at as this interesting kind of golden age basically for um, a lot of kind of British independent animation like you get obviously Ardman, um, you get um, things like I think Channel 4 also funded stuff by the Key Brothers and um there were there were actually a couple I, I was surprised to learn this but there were actually a couple um like independent animated tv shows that they commissioned in the 90s which never really took off but um shows like bob and margaret and pond life um which you can still find on youtube and stuff um but i think they, they never kind of had the same traction as say like um i don't know the simpsons or something um but yeah it, it was interesting to to read a bit about that because i think Basically, because I think funding for independent independent animation is quite hard to come by, um, and I think it was interesting that you had this period basically in um, in the eighties and nineties where there was this you know very direct channel where you could 
you know, get funding and then put something into a fairly mainstream platform where, you know, I can't imagine it would have been airing in prime time, but um, like the way that you get those kind of, yeah, Julian, Julian Olson shorts these days, um, which is kind of also, um, which of course they have, they have their own merits, but it's, it's interesting that um, you have this kind of platform that doesn't necessarily exist for, I think a lot of, um, a lot of independent animators who, you know, oftentimes they make their money kind of go to festivals and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I, I mean, saying independent, I mean, it's quite remarkable and unique that even, even when we say independent, we normally refer to sort of like studios doing it and you, you'd sort of imagine mm. like a, a, a sizable team working on these films, but she really did, you know, animate these things on her own. These are very personal pieces of work and the length of something like the black dog at what 19 minutes or, or something um how, how long is that? It's, it's quite a lot it's it's a fairly long piece of animation to do on your own <laughs> most people i mean stuff like cafe bar and mr pascal that you mentioned they're, they're very short for about five minutes long which is what you'd expect mm-hmm. from someone sort of working on their own making making animated films and the black dog really is something else <laughs> it's 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 quite a remarkable um piece of personal art that you just don't really see in 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 animation yeah i think that's very much something that drew me to her work is i think yeah that that sort of personal angle because yeah i think especially the black dog is it really is about this this one woman sort of psychological journey um and you know, it takes all these turns that you don't necessarily expect and there's no real kind of clear narrative and it, and it has this clear kind of dream logic. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a, it's a very strange, odd little film. And I think it's the kind of film that could only come from just one person working away, um, you know, in her studio or whatever, just kind of toying through all of these ideas and not necessarily thinking about, how it might come out or, you know, whether or not it would play to a kind of wider audience. It's sort of this very raw work that you almost think, you know, she could have just made this for herself and it would have, you know, I think that would have also made sense. It, it, it feels very kind of, um, I guess, intimate in a way. And I, I think that was definitely something that, that drew me to her as a creator that it, I definitely think throughout her work, there is something that is very kind of distinctive and personal. And I think, you know, that I think that's something you get a lot with, um, some of the some of the animation that um, kind of gets celebrated on the sort of festival circuit, and and we can talk about that as well because I think I think um, there is something about that kind of world of animation which is a little separate from the studio system, but you do actually get um, quite a few kind of female animators who make their name in that space rather than sort of like the you know the big sort of Disney Pixar space. Um, obviously, women have always contributed to places like Disney, and, and that that history is also kind of worth remembering. But um, I think yeah, it's interesting that there are there are kind of lots of different venues that um, this stuff gets remembered in. And some of the kind of, I think the most interesting um, animation is is kind of in that world as well. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, you say about Disney, I mean, certainly in in, in that period of, of, of animation history, it was most like women were definitely there, but they were doing things like painting the bubbles and right. <laughs> like working on these small, deep, incredibly menial ink and paint jobs that, um, that 
were, were far beneath the uh, you know the, the the talents of like the nine old men right. and, and the people sort of driving those projects I mean there's there's been a couple of books in recent years um, best of which I think is Natalia Holt's Queens of Animation which is like celebrating those individual women and like highlighting what they contributed to to Disney um, in that period but I think with with Alison Devere, it's it's more um, it's interesting that she when when she has that role, as you said in in Yellow Submarine, she's she's very much not just sort of I mean I want I don't want to say in the background because she was responsible for many of the backgrounds, but um she she um, <laughs> she's she's quite prominent. I mean she was the design director on the film. Um, she cameos in that in my favorite part of. Yellow Submarine, which is the um, Rigby <laughs> sequence, which is just mm. gorgeous um, and so different to the rest of that film, which is very psychedelic. Yeah. And you have this incredibly brutalist sequence that she's, you know, um, responsible for, which is just incredible. Um, yeah, and and I, I suppose I suppose like a lot of the psychedelia of that film and the sort of free-flowing whimsy of it because you were allowed to do that because it's the Beatles and it can be completely wild um and how how she sort of translates that into something like the black dog which you know has these surrealist moments but it's also very stark and very bleak um yeah I don't, it's it's a it's an interesting point of contrast I, I I think no I agree it's it's interesting that um she has this um this kind of space to be really kind of wild and creative. And I think, you know, lots of different animators worked on uh, that film, uh, the Yellow Submarine film. And, and it, it is kind of this real kind of record of, yeah, the sort of psychedelic sixties. And it has all of these, um, these kind of uh, incredible kind of strange um, moments, but then you do get a sequence like that, which is um, very kind of, um, I don't know, like, like you say, it's such a departure from the kind of um, the kind of lighthearted charm, I guess, of, of the rest of the film. And um, it is interesting that in in her other work, you do have this sort of tension between um, the kind of brightness and the sort of silliness of, of some of the scenes. I think like Cafe Bar is is kind of just quite a, a fun little kind of film because it, it's just about these two people on a date, and they all kind of have these. Um, strange wild flights of fantasy while they're there about you know um having to kind of rescue the other person or you know going across like a, a you know vast landscape to reach them and that sort of thing but then you know the black dog I think does have this this kind of darkness to it or um just something that's a bit more kind of unsettling where um there are these kind of you know one moment she's kind of passing at a bar and then the, the next moment she's being kind of thrown into this this kind of boat in the middle of this freezing river and and um it is very much this kind of tale of contrasts and um i think there's something interesting about um that kind of i guess duality within her work that um she was always kind of playing with with both sides and um you can kind of really see that in both the sort of cartoonishness of her visuals but also um, some of them, there are some moments I think in the Black Dot which are genuinely really beautiful and, and just sort of strange and um, and kind of 
uh, very imaginative in, in, uh, in ways that, you know, I think I've rarely seen in, in a lot of animation. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think maybe it's a film I should, I, well, it's certainly a film that I want to, to revisit having done, because I, I sort of watched it and then did <laughs> did some reading for this podcast. So I, I almost wish sure, I'd sort yeah. of, I, I'd sort of read some of the biography behind it beforehand because I think it might have helped me to understand mm. some of that symbolism because um, it is it's 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 on the surface it can just seem a sort of whimsical film and I suppose I suppose animation sometimes ha- can can have that effect it sort of has this certainly for me it would have it has this sort of association with with just sort of childhood fantasy and 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 and, and so on so I think the fact that it's sort of the, knowing that she was she was caring for her mother who who was um, suffering from men- mental health issues and and was you know sort of feeling quite isolated in in Cornwall, which is in um, um, in quite a desolate part of Cornwall, um, and that she's sort of bringing those ideas and that's really influencing what she's what she's designing and what she, the story that she she works out of that gives it quite a different um resonance i don't i don't know yeah i i agree i think the fact that um i guess it again extends to that point we were we were making about you know co-working on this in a very kind of individual way and, and obviously like there was so much uh, space and time between you know that film and her other films and um you know it, it's it's sort of interesting that she um, you know, she had all this time, I guess, to kind of create her own work and, um, you know, obviously think through everything that she was going through. And, and um, you know, as I said earlier, like, you know, she was already like in her in her 50s and 60s at this point, you know, she wasn't, this wasn't kind of her chance to sort of make her first stamp on the world. She'd had her her own career and, and you know, um, achieved a lot of amazing things um, just, you know, as, a, as an animator within, you know, the British industry. Um, this was kind of her chance, I guess, to um, make something that I guess felt more truthful to her, and, and or uh, just kind of to kind of put some of her own internal psychology on the screen, and, and that was kind of what she chose. And I think it is really interesting when you think about the position that she was in in her life um, that she kind of goes and um, makes this film. That you know, I, I think there are very few films that um, you know really trace that um the kind of path of a dream in that in such a kind of odd and kind of offbeat way and um and yeah I think that definitely is something that enhances um your understanding of what she's doing because when you realize like um you know how, how much of a kind of struggle I guess it is to kind of create something like that I, just, I think it just yeah it makes you appreciate the amount of craft and and thought that goes into it mm. Yeah, I suppose I suppose the film that it most reminded me of, um, I can't remember who who made it. It's one of the Raymond Briggs adaptations. It's The Bear, mm. um, Ooh, okay. which which is which is similar in that it's sort of someone being sort of taken out of bed and flying off, and it being this this incredibly moving story. Yeah, it's one of these 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 um, these Christmas films. It's made by. Hillary Ortis. She, 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 um, yeah, she doesn't seem to have 
made many films by the looks of it. Mm, that is interesting. She yeah. she worked on When the Wind Blows as well. I see. Um, yeah, which is you know When the Wind Blows is is my favorite uh, <laughs> animated film. I think that I that I've seen um, mm. because it, it again it's this. I suppose it's something that I've only seen in British animation because right, a lot of yeah. a lot of a lot of well, I mean I'm not particularly well versed in sort of. Um, Eastern European animation. Um, I mean, I suppose someone like Jan Schwankmeyer was was mm-hmm. doing that, this sort of thing. But certainly in American animation, it's it's mostly commercial aimed at sort right. of appealing to you know it's either aiming very specifically at an adult audience or it's aiming very specifically at children. Um, I suppose Pixar right. ties toes that line a bit between sort of um, adult not not adult themes because that sounds really sexual but like um, <laughs> um, like um more sort of like yeah emotions that adults are perhaps more in tune with than than i mean i'm thinking of things like inside out and um sure yeah and solve um by contrast to something like monsters inc which is perhaps a bit more right like, <laughs> e- e- even though i will still cry my eyes out at monsters inc um yes. <laughs> anyway what i'm trying to say is that um British animation seems more comfortable to just be black in its mm. not so much in its hum- I mean when the wind blows is funny to some extent yes. um, in a very warped way but the animation of that film is really experimental um, it, yeah, it, yeah. it's there's a lot of different styles going on there there's some sort of um, 3D animation in there and various different styles of of, of hand-drawn animation i suppose yeah. the bear is an example of something which which is similarly moving something which perhaps i watched as a child and thought was about this lovely polar bear go, go <laughs> flying right. through the yeah. sky uh, and then you watch it when you're older it's like oh my goodness this is this is very <laughs> i mean the, the same with like the snowman and snowman and the snow dog but these these things you know raymond briggs wasn't afraid to sort of say and then he died, you know. Yes, <laughs> like, right. um, exactly. Um, which you don't perhaps get in other animation. Um, and and, and yeah. again, something something like Watership Down and Martin Rosen, who does like um, Watership Down and the and the Plague Dogs. That these these very dark animated films that get shown yeah. on the TV at easter and traumatized children and you know yes. watership down is an incredibly harrowing film again something which a film which has these incredible experimental or surrealistic moments that sort of take you into this like almost depressive existential crisis psyche yeah. thing that, that that's that can be quite I remember being absolutely traumatized by as a child. Yeah. Um, I mean, would you show the black dog to a child? I, d- I don't. I don't know. I mean, what? Who, I suppose this is sort of one of the issues that that TV films particularly brings up is mm. when these things were broadcast, what the response was to that. I don't know if you've you've looked into that with these films. Yeah. 
it's a good question. I wasn't able to find too much about this. I, I was interested. Um, the, the closest thing I got was there's a comment, I think, on one of the YouTube uploads of the Black Dog about someone seeing it at, at like a late night showing on Channel 4 or something. So um, that isn't mm. much of a representative sample. But yeah. um, but I, I wonder if that might have been the case, if there was maybe a segment. Um, I know they had, um, I think it was called Formations, um, which was like kind of, kind of a regular segment that they had where they would show kind of, a lot of these kind of animated films um, that were being made by people like Hardman and things like that. Um, so I wonder if that was a sort of like late night segment. I mean, I know that they they still do things like um, things like random acts or like other kind of short film commissioning stuff that kind of airs fairly late on TV. Um, mm. I, I can't imagine that it was shown as a sort of or marketed as a, as a sort of children's film because, as you say, it's it has this kind of dark undercurrent to it. Um, but it's interesting, though. I, I wonder if there's something about um, the sort of strangeness and surrealism of that that maybe appeals to a child in a, in a certain way. Um, I don't know. I definitely remember. Um, I don't know, seeing maybe not so much films, but like um, I, I have a very distinct memory of going to Tate Modern when I was like um, eleven or something on on a uh, just because me and my family were visiting London and. Um, being just like completely obsessed with a lot of the stuff I saw and not understanding any of it. Um, and I'm sure some of it wasn't appropriate for a child. Um, but I think there was something, in, I think it, about kind of my, like the imagination that I had at the time that a lot of it just seemed like, well, this is stuff that I would like, you know, draw and, you know, in, you know, in between classes in my like school planner or something. Um, and I, I wonder if there's something about, um, about that fact that you know means that someone like Jim, Jimmy T. Murakami can do some of the weirder like you know 3D and stop motion bits in um, when the wind blows and have it kind of you know work you know in a way obviously that that film is not um, it is it's, it's a very dark film as you say but I think um, and yeah I, I think maybe there is something about um, that willingness to sort of um, show the darker side of kind of childhood fantasy that that kind of works um and I was I was thinking as well about like um about Ghibli actually um just because I was thinking like there are moments in Ghibli films that are sort of like that I was just thinking in terms of other kind of animation cultures that delve into that side of things as well because like um I remember like revisiting Spirited Away a few years ago. And um, I think I might have also written about that for Vasti actually under your yes. under your editorial uh, uh, purview. Which it was, is, which vo- was voted good, uh, voted the greatest animated film ever made by by um, the Cambridge student body. I mean it was good, indeed a, um, a very fine choice. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, I remember go- I remember going back to that, I think probably for that that article and um, just thinking like did I watch this when I was like, you know, 12 or whatever? Because like, yeah. you know, there, there are a lot, it's quite like, you know, when no face becomes this kind of giant morbid creature, like that's a pretty scary sequence. And yeah. um, I think um, there, there is something about, maybe it's just a kind of Hollywood thing where you have to make everything kind of like child friendly and stuff. Although obviously, as you say, like Pixar has done, um, you know, one or two kind of deviations from that. But I think it is interesting that once you kind of step out of them, a more kind of, I guess, commercialized model of of animated filmmaking, even if it is still appealing to children, you you kind of are allowed, I guess, to to delve into 
some of those darker emotions and um, explore something that's um, still kind of makes sense to children, but um, yeah. maybe in a kind of more primal way or a kind right. of like more kind of, you know, just raw imagination mm-hmm. way. And then when you get old, you kind of think about it in a more sort of reflective, like this is kind of about the darker side of growing up and things like that. Um, yeah, it's, mm. a, it's an interesting kind of yeah, um, definitely set yeah. of it's, different it's styles. In, to look it's at. interesting you saying that because I'm just thinking like how I first interacted with Ghibli films um, mm. w- was was on film four that they were just on. Yes, me, right. Me and, exactly. my, me and my brother. I mean, I can't quite remember what the first one I saw must have been. I mean, it might have been Pon. No, it can't have been Ponyo. It must have been before Ponyo. Um, can't remember but I, re- I remember absolutely loving Miyazaki's films oh that's that's mm. actually no first time I saw a Ghibli film was Howl's Moving Castle when I was at primary school <laughs> they showed oh, wow. they, sh- they, sh- they showed it to us in an assembly it was it blew my mind no one knew what yeah. earth was going on it was like, <laughs> <laughs> why is this incredible um wild film and we also watched we also watched yeah. um Spirited Away um as a sort of mm. end of year treat I don't I mean whoever that teacher was who was responsible for the film programming <laughs> I mean hats off to them um yeah but I loved Miyazaki's films and hated Takahata's like oh really That's really like I remember watching only yesterday and thinking it was the most boring <laughs> film I'd ever seen um, oh wow which is which is sad because I mean now now, (laughs) only yesterday is a great film I know it's your favorite Ghibli film and yes (laughs) I I I, you know I I love it um I still hate Pompoko that Pompoko is a is I think his his only deeply distressing film (laughs) (laughs) it's a very strange film yeah that's kind of the the dark side of childhood that we maybe don't want to talk about yeah I mean I'm glad I I, I don't think I saw that one as a child thankfully um, no, that's good. And I, I still haven't yeah. seen like Grave of the Fireflies because I know that it will just destroy oh, me. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm saving that for a day when I am ready. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's it's interesting that there are, even within like the same studio, that there can be these very distinct voices. And and, and yeah. um, I think I think you're right to talk about Ghibli when we were talking about um this is because I, you know, I was saying British animation does that. I think I think Japanese animation has sort of perfected towing that line mm. between what appeals to an adult and what appeals to a child. Um, yeah, and not being afraid to sort of blend those things together um, and to and to make films that really, really can't be appreciated until you're until you're older. Um, yeah, I think I think I think the closest thing that maybe American animation comes is as 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 say some of Pixar's films do that mm. quite effectively. I suppose the closest the the closest for Alison Devere comes in sort of appealing to. I mean, you you sent me some of the the films to look at. I mean, you know, I w- watched all of those. So um, Cafe Bar, Mr. Pascal, Black Dog, and Psyche and Eros. But I also watched um, a couple of her sort of half an hour. I mean, oh, I, yeah. I, I, I think that th- this would these these are films that would be shown in a very similar way to like, as I said, like Tiger Who Came to Tea, We're Going on a Bear Hunt, sort of sure. adaptations of children's books which get shown at Christmas type thing. Um, one of them was 
the angel and the soldier boy, which is mm. um, sort of marketed as being part of the kids collection from 1989 um, is that one um, mm. and the other one's called um, a small miracle. I think they're both based on books by Peter Connington, um, and mm. these 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 almost look in some ways sort of like um, Raymond Briggs sort of um, picture books that are very simple sort of right almost religious parables. Really, I mean, small miracle is about um, a, a a woman who who plays an accordion and then interacts with um a nativity set that comes to life and the nativity set sort of helps her to get her accordion fixed and angel and the mm. soldier boy is, is 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 similarly has this um this angel figure interacting with 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 a toy soldier um mm. and um in in some ways it may i mean it was it's sort of similar to um mr pascal um which we haven't talked about yeah i don't think with sort of mm. this widowed shoemaker who takes pity on this effigy of of christ which which come which comes to life um i mean i don't i don't know what her relationship with religion was but it's interesting that there is this sort of religious theme running through her films and it's a very sympathetic depiction of of, of christ in, in in that film um yeah I was wondering this as well because obviously she, you know, she kind of dabbles in a, in a bunch of different sort of religious mythologies, I guess, and you know, some of them are obviously kind of ancient. But it, yeah, that Mister Pascal is an interesting film in that it is this, um, yeah, kind of almost modern kind of Christ narrative, but it's it's told in this again kind of light-hearted way, but also I think it, it does feel like quite a sincere film to me. Like there's there's a kind of um, there's a kind of melancholy in the way that you know you have this kind of lonely uh, widow, as you say, and, and he just kind of um, is just sort of working isolated in his in his own little wood shop, and um, and you know has this kind of dreamlike quality, but it also has this um, I think quite genuine. Um, I think sadness to it to some extent, like there's the bit at the end where, you know, he's just like sleeping on the bench and then, um, you know, he's kind of all alone. And it, it, I think it turns out that um, some of the people nearby end up being angels. And it's, it's kind of this um, strange, surreal sequence, but, um, but it has that kind of undercurrent of, um, of kind of, I guess, genuine sympathy. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting one, but I, 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 it's interesting also that, like you say, she, she worked on those sort of, other kind of uh, sort of more more explicitly kind of targeted towards children um, films, um, and I think yeah. that is something that I've I've seen in uh, just kind of looking at the careers of quite a few sort of British animators that they do kind of you kind of have to kind of do a lot of different stuff basically that you know you have maybe your more kind of personal passion projects, but then you also do like, you know, commercial work. And obviously that was something that Alison DeVitt herself did, or you work on kind of, you know, backgrounds for some studio or whatever. Cause um, you know, I think at this point Ardman really is kind of the one big kind of 
you know, bona fide studio that you have in, in the UK that's kind of still going. Um, sadly, I mean, it would be great if we had more. Um, I feel like Ireland has has cut-in saloons, which is kind of what? cool, uh, but that's obviously <laughs> um, adjacent. But, you know, they, they, I mean, they have different, you know, I think they got a lot of their funding mm. from, like, the Irish Film Board and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, cartoon um, saloons but, films are an interesting point of comparison in, 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 yeah. in some ways. I mean, I, I you know, I was talking talking about sort of how how Alison De Beers films sort of fit in within the international landscape of animation. Um, mm. And Cartoon Saloon really do- roots its films in, 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 a, in a national mythology and in a national yes, tradition. Yes, that's true. Um, which, which perhaps those, those religious elements of, um, of De Beers films is sort of emulating in, 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 in some way. Yeah, I don't... I, sort of the imagery of of dogs in like the black dog and and, and wolf walkers mm. and sort of what those the relationship with animals in in her films is quite beautiful i think yeah yeah i love the um i guess we haven't talked too much about the titular black dog as such yet yeah. but um in in the film uh what happens is that you know she falls asleep and as she kind of enters this sort of dream world, the black dog is kind of her guide. Like it just kind of appears out of nowhere. And it, it, you know, I think the obvious thing is to kind of read it as some kind of symbol, but actually I, I think what's kind of cool about the film is that the dog is just kind of a dog basically. And it, and it is this sort of its own kind of, um, you know, gets to be its own kind of independent figure. And, and it sort of has this odd kind of relationship with, this kind of main character as she kind of travels through this landscape and she never quite knows what the dog is thinking, but um, it is this kind of um, almost kind of mystical figure, but it's also not, you know, um, I think reduced to any kind of obvious kind of, you know, oh, well, the dog is, you know, her her internal mind or whatever, something, like, something that might have been a bit more lazy. I think there is something kind of nice about the way that the dog just, um, you know, is never, you know, never needs to have a, some kind of um, grander explanation. It's just kind of part of the dream in, in, in the same way that everything else is. Um, and yeah, no, but it's interesting to make that comparison to Cartoon Saloon because I think they really are an, an interesting kind of, when we're talking about kind of mythologies, I think they are really, they have really kind of, you know, been the definitive sort of um, example of a, of a studio that really kind of delves into um the kind of riches of, you know, obviously Irish uh, folklore, but I, I think also, you know, their films are really interesting kind of historical narratives as well. And um, and obviously like they, they've made other things like they made um, that film, The Breadwinner, which is um, which is about um, a young girl uh, in Afghanistan. And um, they're, they're really, I mean, yeah, I, I kind of can't sing their phrases enough. I think they're such an interesting mm. kind of- um, Likewise. Yeah, studio I mean, that- Breadwinner. Yeah. Has those gorgeous sequences, which is sort of the storytelling aspect that sort of goes alongside where yes. we're sort of taken out of that that really stark and really quite. I mean, it's an incredibly dark film. I mean, I, I watched The Breadwinner <laughs> um, at the Cambridge Film Festival in a screening that was mm. advertised as like for kids, come and hang out. Oh, and no, then it's really? like, oh my <laughs> god, this is this is really quite yeah. horrific. But you have these mo- these really beautiful. Um, sort of almost like um, paper cutout style animation mm. um, of this sort of 
story based in the sort of religious mythos of 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 the culture and it sort of takes you out in the way that Devere does a lot where it's sort of like here is the stark reality of a situation and then here's all the mm. sort of like fantasy around it it's like <laughs> the the escapism very much sits both on top of and alongside the the reality of a situation and it to the point where it almost becomes difficult to distinguish between the two in in her, in her films um yeah which I, sure. I, I think yeah. is like certainly the most powerful aspect of of her work um which is perhaps why i i i i found the black dog perhaps well i mean i you know it's hardly radical to call it her masterpiece but it it, it would certainly yeah. be um the 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 best of the of the of these films and you know it's on youtube everyone go and watch it yeah um and as indeed are most of these these films now you know they're not they're not terribly hard to find interestingly the only one that's sort of on a streaming service is um her first sort of film that she made on her own um in what 1968 i think it was two faces which isn't yes yeah. which is hard to sort of call an animated film really because it's very static um it's just sort of these yeah very simple paintings that sort of move transition to um in in the film of this poetry sort of being being read over it in a way that's sort of similar to to blue Jama's um, yeah which uh, is interesting coming quite a long time before before Derek Charman starts making films um, mm. yeah I suppose the other yeah. film that we, we haven't talked about is um, Psyche and Eros mm. um, yes we, which again is sort of riffing on this theme of mythology that we've sort of found ourselves talking about and how it sort of works its way into these films I mean it's there in as you said with sort of um, the dream aspects of Black Dark and and also yeah. in in Cafe Bar, and then Psyche and Eros is sort of like those those later films in that it's sort of taking a story, um, a, a mythological story, and and just sort of telling it, which is yeah, I suppose more in line with the sort of um, the sort of thing that would get commissioned for television now rather than being told right. like yeah. make, make make a personal piece of art it's like you need to animation as adaptation is very much sort of the way that it's gone in british yes. animation um i mean Ardman is sort of the only one that's really sort of still mm. making british animated films that aren't based on like um a book. although Ardman is starting to do sort of sequels yeah. and things um sean the sheep too and <laughs> yes, Farmageddon, chick, 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 chicken run too. Um, <laughs> which don't get me wrong, I love, but like <laughs> it's it's almost a shame that it's not sort of um, something new. I mean, Early Man was original, but it wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, yeah, no, sorry. It's, it, the... I'm 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 sort of waffling about this. Take, please, no, no, that's <laughs> take okay. over. Um... <laughs> No, I appreciate the the Ardman thoughts. I haven't seen Early Man, but I can I I, I can kind of I think I know what you mean about the mm. sort of you know um, I don't know something a bit I don't know um, less inspired than maybe you know mm. their kind of kind of golden age of stuff from the from the nineties and two thousands. But um, but no, it's it's interesting. Yeah, Psyche and Eros is um, 
I mean, I was thinking about it because, as you say, it is a, a kind of more narrative film, but it is so different, I think, to the kinds of, like, I don't know. I'm just thinking, like, what is a kind of version of that that I would have seen when I was younger? And I think, if I imagine it, it probably has some kind of, like, you know, overbearing voiceover over the top, and it, it's probably kind of, I don't know, um, it, it's shown in a kind of very kind of, in a direct or like explained way I think one of the things that really struck me about Psyche and Eros her version of it um not really being particularly familiar with the kind of the original myth is that I, I kind of couldn't quite follow the narrative exactly like it there's no kind of you know there's a little kind of slide at the star which says oh this is this is kind of the story that I'm about to tell but there's nothing in the interim that actually kind of explains anything that's happening it's it's this um, it is just this kind of weird passes away through um, through the myth in a way that really doesn't make anything explicit. It has this kind of impressionistic quality almost because it, mm. like you said about some of her other films, like there's nothing that you can quite tell is sort of real or mythological or, um, you know, when is it that the kind of gods are coming in to intervene and when are they not? Um, and... Yeah, I, I found that really interesting as a film that um, is kind of ostensibly educational, but kind of has its own, still kind of has its own distinctive qualities. Um, mm. Yeah, and I think it it really highlights something that's in common to all her films, um, save perhaps the 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 other the two I watched, the Angel and the Soldier Boy mm. and the Small Miracle, which is like later films. I mean. Um, a small miracle doesn't get released until two thousand and two, year after her death. Um, is is that these films are silent films and there's no yeah dialogue, which is very much sort of in line with those those um, Raymond Briggs sort of um, yeah um, films that get made where there's there's you know there's no no dialogue in the Snowman or um, mm. the Bear and I don't. I don't know what what. It's it almost it seems to me that that's something that you could only do with an animated film. Yeah. Um, yeah. At this point in time, um, because if you made a silent, silent, live action film, I don't. I don't know if it would. If it would be yeah. quite as well received as 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 it is with animation. You know, this is. This is pure visual storytelling. Um, yeah, and yeah. maybe that maybe that's why something like Psyche and Eros is harder to follow. If you you know, as as you say, sort of, if you haven't read the Golden Ass and know the the, right, sto yes. the, sto yeah. the, the story, um, which I did, and and even then, I was struggling to, as you say, to sort of yeah piece together follow what's going on because you really have to. These these are films where you really have to sort of sit down, give it your full attention, and go along with it, and be a, yes, allow yourself to be to be swept along with the narrative, which which is a remarkably beautiful thing. I think I yeah, there aren't that many films that do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, it, it feels yeah, like something I, that yeah. comes out of that period in in sort of independent. Uh, um, TV funded British cinema which just doesn't happen as much perhaps 
anymore. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think that is very much, I think for me, the, the selling point of her work that, you know, it is very much something that I think I very much had to kind of allow myself to be just carried away with and um, just not, almost kind of not think too much, I guess. Like I think um, it's sort of a habit, I think if you're, if you like kind of writing about film that you, you have to kind of constantly analyze every, every little detail. I think what I liked about her films is that they kind of work on this more almost subliminal level or like uh, just a level where, you know, they don't necessarily invite um, interpretation so much as this kind of raw feeling, which I think is so special. Um, and, and I do think that is something that you get in kind of other um, sort of international and independent animation. I mean, the, the film that it reminded me of actually was um, the Suzanne Pitt film Asparagus, if you've seen that, um, which is kind of, um, it is also a, a sort of like almost a dream vision of a film where, um, you know, you have this, uh, you also have this woman who kind of, um, you know, she sort of awakes in a, in a room and then goes on this sort of strange journey through um, this sort of landscape that is filled with, seemingly filled with references to both food and sex. And kind of, you know, she goes into this movie theater at one point and it is this, again, just this traversal of a landscape that never kind of makes it exactly clear you know what is happening and why but it, it, it's rich with this sort of um visual symbolism and all of these kinds of um strange little diversions and deviations that um build up this this bigger sort of psycho psychological psychosexual portrait um and i think that was definitely something i also felt watching something like the black dog yeah absolutely um yeah i haven't seen Susan Pitzel. She's she's American, is that right? She's American, yeah. Um, yeah. I'll have to. And... I'll, I'll, I'll have to look at these. Sorry. <laughs> um, no, no, that's okay. It, it, it sounds amazing. Um, yeah, I suppose I suppose that's something that. I mean, we've talked about the films. What, to what extent is sort of female identity coming through here? Like, what distinguishes these films from from? you know, the dominant sort of male-directed films. I, su I suppose it's, I suppose it's exactly that, 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 I don't know. I suppose a lot of, a lot of films by women often get criticised for being representations of sort of mental health and, and depression and sort of being very personal. Whereas when, you know, male filmmakers do that it's like you know they're a genius yeah um, <laughs> I mean so some of the so I, I've talked about some of the um uh, with some of the other films directed by women you look at like reviews of the films it's like oh it's so remarkable to see a woman who's not just using filmmaking as therapy uh, like oh my yeah. god um <laughs> but you know as a woman watching these films I think that's why the black dog does resonate is because it mm. it it's it's somewhat i mean obviously this isn't specific to the fact that she's a woman but there is something remarkably personal and moving about seeing something like the black dog where it's like this is this is you know this is a female 
um, protagonist who is sort of, and we're, and we're really going along on this sort of psychological journey with her. Um, I mean, it's something that Ghibli does remarkably well, I think. Mm, yeah. Um, much, much more so than perhaps Disney does, you know. With, with a Disney film, you're sort of, the, the, the women are sort of shown with these in, in wasp waists and incredibly right, yes. un, unbelievably impossibly beautiful and proportioned yeah. and, and whereas Ghibli has always been sort of you know particularly in Miyazaki's films it's always sort of a, a young female heroine um and I, I suppose what what the what I really appreciated about these films is that they sort of dive into that uh those sorts of narratives in a um in a more cerebral way rather than perhaps it just being like this is this is this is just a girl going on a journey or going on an adventure yeah. it's like you know no we're go- we're, go- we're really sort of delving into into her psyche in in these films yeah yeah absolutely and i i think i think that probably is what what strikes me about the films is that you know it, it definitely feels like um you know, not to say that the film is sort of autobiographical or anything, but it, it definitely feels like um, in something like The Black Dog, she is just pulling from this very kind of raw personal experience and, um, you know, not necessarily kind of filtering it into any kind of, you know, um, particularly, I guess, affected or like, um, you know, intentionally kind of, artful way it it very much feels like you know she is kind of just saying something about herself or just you know her her thinking and I think there is something that um you know I think it would be it would be difficult for like a man to make this film in the same way because I I just think like you know you wouldn't have the same experiences right like this is this is very much like Alison DeVere's film and I think that is something that um is sort of special about her work and um I think and also about Suzanne Pitt's film, for example, like I think yeah. you know her work is very much grounded. I think in in like um, a kind of you know her own womanhood and her own kind of understanding of her sexuality and things like that. That um, I think are very much you know films that think things that I think you know um, films films by male directors sometimes they try to do and sometimes they don't do very well. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's it's yeah it's it's interesting to um to think about that i think also in in relation to some of the other um kind of sort of british female animators whose whose work i've seen i mean um one of the things that i I thought about um one of the other animators i was thinking about uh doing for this podcast actually uh, i was going to suggest was um a filmmaker called joanna quinn um who's um done a bunch of um kind of at the opposite end actually in, in the sense that you know if, if Alison DeVere's films are the sort of interior um kind of personal angle uh Joanna Quinn makes these films about a very kind of uh you know uh how to describe it like um I guess larger than life uh mm. Welsh woman called Beryl who works in a factory and and has this kind of um slightly awkward and, and crazy life where you know she gets into all these kind of odd situations and they're kind of like a bit gross and a bit you know outlandish but I think you know they're they're all about like you know her most famous film was a film called Girls Night Out which is um just about you know a bunch of kind of 
a bunch of women kind of going on the town and going to this um this kind of male strip club and and um and you know just having a time of it basically and it's kind of the more um I guess extroverted sort of sexually explicit um more adventurous version of a kind of femininity on screen um and I think that's a kind of interesting um contrast in a way where like that very much isn't autobiographical as far as I know Joanna Quinn is not um a Welsh woman not named Beryl but um she kind of um explores I think um elements of female sexuality and and um and just kind of uh female friendship and the way that she interacts with her friends and uh in in a way that I think you know really makes use of the kind of the ability for animation to um express something that is a bit kind of larger than life and exaggerated but kind of also gets to this deeper truth um absolutely yeah it's interesting because I was you know when I was putting um the animation quiz together and it, I wanted it to be this sort of big all-encompassing thing looking at all different sorts of animation and I wanted to really have a really strong representation of female animators and I had this issue of like you you can't ask questions about people that are incredibly you know ex- obscure to the point where no one would actually yeah. know the answer and and also the fact that most women who have made animated films are working in that sort of adult experimental um, genre they're not work it there isn't quite so much representation within sort of mainstream animation I mean there are obviously female animators at Ghibli but no Ghibli film is directed by a woman um Disney has only just sort of you know Jennifer Lee is the yeah. only person who's directed a right. film and, and she works with Chris Buck and Pixar is is sort of managing to pull itself out of being the sort of boys club yes. but it's it's been known yeah. as I mean some of the spark shorts that they've done are quite yeah rem- remarkable um Barrow which um was nominated for um the Academy Award for Best short um is a is a beautiful film with a very adorable rabbit um, yes. um and domi she is doing incredible yeah. that bow is a remarkable film and one that you know that, that that does sort of really honestly taps into um the feelings of her mother and and yeah and, and sort of letting go of her of her child who's sort of you know she's she's sort of fallen out with and and i find that film incredibly moving um yeah and and she's got she's got her first feature coming yeah. fairly soon which is exciting um yes so yeah i think it i think it's i mean and then you get things that are a bit more on the nose something like pearl which is very much like right <laughs> you know we're not gonna yeah. do we're not gonna be subtle about this <laughs> um, yeah. um it's sort of girl boss <laughs> type yes of right exactly um but it's a ball of wool um <laughs> yeah so so it's it's i don't i don't i'd like to say that it's changing for the better hopefully um but in some ways it's kind of a shame that there are there aren't more traditionally animated films that we have that are sort of 
uh, I mean, obviously, we've I've mentioned Joy Batchelor, and you have um, oh, Car- Cartoon Saloon, um, of course, um, you know, has has a sort of good balance of of men and women working on 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 their films and directing their films. So I suppose, I suppose there might be some hope there. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, it is tricky because I think, like you say, the historically these you know I think especially in in these big corporations that have a lot of kind of um you know places like Disney there's a lot of sort of financial pressure I think to you know make each film as successful as possible it does kind of work as a business and I think when you have that model it is more difficult to then you know women then face the same barriers that they do in any business which is that you know um the kind of male creators are the ones that are given the sort of they're seen as more authoritative or you know that or you know um they're kind of given the sort of genius status that that women yeah. are not afforded it's, in those it's, spaces. It's, it's, women have uh, are always branded as a risk that like right, a film exactly. made a, a film made by a woman is a risky prospect because it's there's yep. no guarantee that it will that it will do well which is of course an absolutely ludicrous <laughs> so, yeah. thing to say um and i i, I suppose the most frustrating thing for me as someone who sort of <laughs> likes Disney films and yeah. always has done as much as I sort of battle with my, you know, socialist inclinations and the political <laughs> side of things. I, I, yeah. I, 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 I will be bowled over by Frozen too. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, it, the, Disney has this issue with international markets that if it you know, you see this constantly with Disney, like wrestling so hard with itself about whether or not to include same-sex couples in its films, or yeah, Jesus. you know, the the constant thing of like Disney has its first out gay character, and it's like a blink and you'll miss it moment. Yeah, in in onward, and then Russia <laughs> like censors the film, and yeah, <laughs> and yeah. that's an, that's a national, a huge national market that's just gone and disney yeah. i suppose has the and and and, and the, the domestic market in america as well will be greatly affected by that um so it's it's this difficult thing that you know those big studios face that smaller studios just don't have to care about really um i suppose um yeah not that I'm saying it's right that they care about that, but like, no, I suppose, right, exactly. I, I suppose trying to put my 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 head in like, I don't know the 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 mindset of Bob Iger and like right. what, <laughs> what he's thinking when he's like, who's going to direct my next big you know Disney princess movie? I mean, obviously it would make yeah. sense to let a woman make a Disney princess movie, but oh no, yeah. you know, we'll just make sure she's got a guy on hand just to like you know rein yeah. her in in case it becomes like I don't know, I don't know what like I don't know what the mindset is. It's 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 difficult and it's something we can only sort of speculate about but yeah it's it's i think it's it's, i think i think i think it's the same to some extent with sort of like um 
when the the ethnicity of a lot of like animated directors it's like we were going we're going to make yeah. a really um great depiction of this culture or whatever but we'll hire a white director yeah. and it just doesn't yeah. make coco any sense well exactly exactly coco's yeah. a, a a good example of that yeah um, which I, I think was like you know i think well received by a lot of people in mexico and elsewhere but you know obviously like you know having that be the you know the sort of creative position that um you know to to not kind of have someone who understands that culture mm. be at the yeah. head at the head of it um... yeah i mean it's, it's 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 the same with like the live action films like something like um the yeah. moulin yeah. remake which is made by nikki carrie yeah. i mean nikki carrie is a yeah. fine filmmaker but really like what what's going yeah. on there and like the people who made Raya and the last dragon are like yeah <laughs> <laughs> it, it just doesn't yeah, they're it not just, from southeast asia no they are not um uh, yeah i mean one of them is mexican-american carlos lopez estrada and and the other one's called don don hall <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I, I have a feeling he is also not from southeast asia <laughs> no i cannot imagine no um, so it's, it's just like if you're if you're going to sort of profess that you're making something authentic um and you know yeah and and then i suppose to still have the people but you know you can have people in front of the camera you know like um kelly marie tran and aquafina being the voices yeah. in that film but you have it, it matters so much who's also behind that film and who's making the creative decisions um yeah and i i think in the case of like Alison de Beers films, what we see on the screen, particularly in The Black Dog, is very much a reflection of who she is and her identity yes. and what she's trying to get across in what she's making. And it is baffling to me that like that most of the yeah. animated films that still get still come out, still get made aren't doing that. I mean, praise be to Bong Joon-ho who is making yeah. his animated debut <laughs> yes <laughs> which will That'll be terrific which will be incredible um yeah I don't know what your I mean yeah what your take is on on I mean I'm sort of opening up a massive can of worms here no, I, I mean in terms of it's worth yeah in terms of of um in terms of representation sort of behind animated films yeah. which I think is a unique issue and and distinct issue from 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 live action cinema yeah no of course and and it's it's so kind of worms open worth opening up i mean i I think (laughs) this has just been you know especially um you know i think in in a place like disney which is just such a massive corporation that has a lot of kind of you know vested financial interests in and in its films kind of doing well in a particular way and that is kind of averse to change for those reasons and you know even if you have things like the spark shots which i think are great and and a lot of you know um female directors more you know directors from more diverse backgrounds have taken them on but they're you know they're not necessarily with with the exception of of the great w who i think it's terrific um you know then they're not necessarily given the same um you know opportunities to kind of advance to sort of you know helming their own feature film and you know in even with you know like you were saying in with films like Raya, like, you know, 
you know you can you can have a film that that you know I, I mean I enjoyed Raya but I think you know there was there was certainly like plenty of criticism I read from you know Southeast Asians from you know like the fact that you know they, they casted like Asian Americans but not necessarily people from Southeast Asian backgrounds all the time and or just like you know mixing and matching different cultures in a way that you know didn't really make a lot of sense um yeah in the same way that like crazy rich asians is sort of celebrated as this this great depiction of um uh yeah and uh, similar sort of like it's just this western idea that every every, everyone from asia comes from like this one place and it's like yeah without any appreciation for for yeah for for yeah you know what I'm trying to say sorry you can probably articulate yeah better than I'm trying no to. no I mean no exactly and it, it's this um and I think it's the same with like you know um for female directors where I think you know there is this idea that okay well we're gonna make a yeah from like Pearl which is kind of very explicitly like you know anti sort of boys club office culture and stuff or we'll get a woman to direct that but then you know when we're kind of um but there, there is this kind of disconnect where like you know when they actually make films with female characters and films that with female characters that can be great, like, I don't know, Inside Out or something like that, you know, we're not going to get um, women to direct them and we're not going to see a kind of dissonance there. And, um, and you know, I think there is just something about, like you were saying, that institutional culture, I think especially at a place like Disney, which not to say that it has a monopoly over the sort of animation yeah. market in America, but it has such a kind of prominence there that I think it it makes it inherently kind of more conservative in, in a lot of its decision-making. Um, I mean, I'm wondering, I'm just thinking about other models. Like, I guess one of the things I was thinking about, what is like a studio that's doing a better job at this sort of thing? And I, I thought of um, Kyoto Animation um, in Japan, which are kind of, I mean, you know, not just the you know the the Japanese animation industry is also very male dominated, um, but here's some animation kind of made a name for itself and actually hiring quite a few female animators and um, you know for those who don't know they they made um, films like A Silent Voice yeah. and um, which is directed by uh, Naoko Yamada who's a female director and mm. um, you know they I think are, are a studio that I think a lot of people have pointed to as a not necessarily as the ideal or anything like that, but I think a studio that is um, making kind of more um, executive decisions to actually make it more accessible to to female animators and to actually make that a priority for themselves as a studio. And I think maybe that is something to do with the fact that, you know, I think in Japan, there are just more animation studios. I mean, there are are so, so many, and I, I think, um, I wonder if there's something about um, that kind of plurality which allows for, you know, like a studio to actually kind of, you know, quote unquote, take a risk, although it's not really a risk, but um, there, there's more kind of, they, they have more of an ability and a, more of a sense of assurance that um, they can kind of make those decisions. Um, I guess the difficulty then is, you know, can that sort of translate to a, a, a wider um you know a a wider kind of industry and culture when like you say I think there is a difference between animation and live action where I think you can get different kinds of funding streams and obviously there have been like lots of you know 
um, funding programs or mentorships for like female directors and that's made a big difference um you know i think in animation it, it because it's its own kind of industry and it has its own sort of skill set doesn't necessarily have the same connection to those um those kinds of streams or those kinds of services in the same way it, it's a bit more kind of isolated from that sort of change which is frustrating that's a lot to think about <laughs> there's a lot to think about yeah, well, thanks so much, Ian, for introducing me to this wonderful filmmaker. Not at all. Yeah, no, I'm so glad, and thank you so much for having me on. It's a yeah, it's a privilege to to get to talk to you about this stuff, and um, and yeah, like lots to think about. I think for me as well. I think there's um, you know, um, there, there's yeah, there's so much in animation that is great, and there's so much that that needs to change. And I think you know, um, it's great to kind of yeah, talk to someone else who cares about this stuff. So. Absolutely. Thank you. If you've got an idea for an article or a podcast, you can contact me via Twitter. My handle is at Lil Croft with three L's in Lil, which is where I'll be posting about new writing and episodes. Do also get in touch if you fancy appearing as a guest and have a film you'd love to discuss with me. The Listen to Lillian podcast is available via the blog and all the usual channels, including Spotify, Google and Apple Podcasts, so don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All that remains for me to say is thank you for listening and toodle pip.